As Drew said, my name is Ryan. If I haven't met you, just super glad that you're here with us today. And we have been going through the Gospel of John, uh, just getting a close encounter look at who Jesus is and what he has to say about himself. Um, All of us like to be able to speak for ourselves when it comes to representing ourselves and having people know who we really are. And so what better way for us to encounter, to explore, and to investigate the most significant person who's ever lived. Whether you're a non-Christian or Christian, all of human history and society has been greatly impacted by this guy who lived 2,000 years ago. And he made incredible claims, and as we've even been seeing through the Gospel of John up to this point, Jesus makes claims on all of us. No one can necessarily just remain neutral on Jesus, but rather there's a decision made, either for or against, and we looked at it even two weeks ago, as he comes in, he divides the room, and why does he do that? Because Jesus speaks with ultimate authority. He doesn't speak asking for permission, but rather he speaks giving direction, saying emphatically who he is, where he has come from, and his identity, making it clear for all of us. So all of us have to come to grips with that and wrestle with that. And I would argue that the implications, the reality of where you come down on Jesus shapes everything about you. As A.W. Tozer, a great pastor theologian, said, what you believe about God is actually the most important thing about you. And I think that stands true even for us today. So what we're going to look at today is a beautiful passage, but before we do, I want to pray one more time and ask God to help us. Jesus, thank you for allowing us to gather. Thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. May you give us soft hearts and humble spirits and make us repentful people so that we may live in your joy and be people who take in and receive your Holy Spirit. In your name, amen. Um, So Crystal and I, Uh, My wife, when we began dating, we were living in Las Vegas. uh, She grew up there. I grew up there for a good chunk of time as well. And uh, right after we had gotten married, we decided to go on kind of this this cool midnight hike to this waterfall in this place called Red Rock National Park. And you would hike up this trail, and we thought we were going to be able to do it by moonlight. So we didn't bring flashlights with us. I know, super smart, brilliant, don't judge me, freedom in Christ. But so we went for a hike, and we thought, we would have all the moonlight we needed. Uh, Needless to say, some cloud cover came in, and as we were hiking along this trail trying to make it to this awesome waterfall at about one in the morning, we find ourselves in pitch black. Now, what began to make it even worse is the desert is not necessarily a very hospitable place to be when it's pitch black outside. You begin to hear all sorts of sounds. You begin to stumble over rocks. You begin to wonder, how am I going to get out of here? You begin wondering, um, do we have enough water? Whatever it might be, a whole bunch of things begin to flash before your eyes and questions you begin to ask yourselves and even just tests of your new marriage as you guys begin to navigate this predicament you find yourself in. Um, I, though, being the, I don't know, the adventurous one or foolish one, take your pick, I decided we should continue on, even in the dark. I thought, well, we've come this far. Let's keep going. So we began going, and all of a sudden, I begin to hear what sounds like a scene from The Walking Dead. I mean, just horrific noises. I mean, something is almost like a mixture of a haunted house meets, you know, just nails on a chalkboard. And it's just, it's scary. It doesn't sound right. Uh, It's beginning to freak us out. And we come around this corner, and literally, we find ourselves face-to-face with these two nasty-looking burrows. Does anyone know what a burrow is? Anyone ever seen it? A burrow is basically a wild donkey. Uh, These were animals that were left there, 
during the gold rush of the 18th century. So they were just left there. They would pull out the belongings of a lot of the people, the 49ers who were chasing the gold rush, and they'd only get so far, and then they just abandoned the animals there. Well, the animals have stayed, and they're nasty. They'll bite you. They'll kick you. They'll fight you, especially if you come upon their resources in water. And so we come around this corner, and here's a burrow staring us dead in the eye, and he makes this sound that still to this day causes almost the hair on my arms to stand up. And we took around, we turned around, we began running. And I was just in great fright. I remember, I didn't care how dark it was, I was just going in the other direction. That night, I can't tell you what I would have given for a little bit of light. So that I would have been able to see where we were going, to navigate the terrain, to not run into these crazy wild burrows, but just one flashlight would have possibly saved us some stumbles and scrapes and falls in an encounter with a crazy burrow. And I begin wondering how much of us, we go through life, and it's not necessarily encountering a crazy burrow, but we wonder, what's the next step right in front of us? What is our life supposed to look like? What about when things really begin to grow dim? When we can't necessarily make sense of what's next for us? When our career seems to stall out? When our marriage seems to find itself in a dark hole? When we're not sure what we're going to do after college, when this relationship seems to be coming to an end. See, I, I think what Jesus is saying for us today is that life is found walking in the light. Life is found walking in the light. And that really is the big idea of the passage we're even looking at today. But there's layers to this and nuances that I want us to unpack with one another. That for us, life, if you're going to have life, if you're going to live, there's this beauty, there's this reality that all of us, you and I, we're completely contingent upon light, about knowing where we're going, about what is next, about what leads, what governs, what guides, everything. I mean, we take it for granted, we take it as a given, but even the reality that every single day the sun rises on this earth and you and I are able to live our lives, that life is guided, is found walking in the light. And so as we were talking a couple weeks ago, Jesus finds himself at this Feast of Tabernacles. And I told you the Feast of Tabernacles is kind of like an ancient version of Burning Man, but a lot more holy. So everyone goes outside. You're camping outside for a number of days. It's a massive party and celebration. People from all over Israel come. Tens of thousands of folks have gathered to celebrate the harvest. It's probably similar to the time of year that we're in right now. The harvest has come in, and everyone's come together to party, to dance, to celebrate, to be together. And Jesus stands up, and we looked at it a couple weeks ago, and he says, I am the living water, the one for who you all thirst at the climactic ceremony. And John 8, 12 finds us even just a little bit later in that very same day. And you won't be able to see the image much, but what I want you to imagine is this temple. This is the temple that Jesus would have been in, along with all the other Pharisees and religious leaders. And you've got to remember, they don't have an electrical grid like we do. They don't have light sources like we do. They don't have a light switch to light up every room in their house. And when it gets dark out, it stays dark out. There's no, I'm going to go ahead and explore or do some spelunking with my headlamp or whatever it might be. There's no source of electricity. You lived your life by the sunrise and the sunset. And so once a year, the Jewish people would come together at the Feast of Tabernacles and to remind themselves of how gracious God had been to them. If you read your Bible, this is the beautiful thing about it, and especially the Gospel of John, is it ties together all these amazing themes from the Old Testament into the Gospel of John. It's littered with this rich history of Judaism and even picks up on many of those themes. 
And this is the theme, this, cel- this ceremony that they're doing is they would come together in the temple courts of Solomon to light these incredibly tall candelabras. Imagine candelabras almost as ta- tall as the ceiling in here. And they would light them, and they would light up the sky, and it would be the brightest night of the year, and they would spend all of the night thanking God for his guidance and his provision and his love and his care for them. And they would remember that as the Israelites wandered through the desert for 40 years, and once again, the desert is an incredibly scary place to be at night. Here's what you get when you're in the desert at night. You feel danger and you feel unknown. But God did not leave the Israelites there. He did not leave his people in a place of darkness and danger, but rather he gave them a pillar of fire that said, I'm with you. Literally, God was the light that the Israelites found life in as they walk through the desert for 40 years. And so they're remembering this. You've got you to just picture this. Get this in your head. This is such a huge ceremony. This is a big event. And Jesus comes forward. And this is what he says in verse 12, as Renee read for us. And let's read it again. This is what Jesus says. Jesus speaks as everyone's attention is all together. Just imagine someone walking into a massive party that you're throwing, and someone says, all eyes on me, and they make this incredibly disruptive pronouncement. And Jesus speaks once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Every single person in that temple court would have known the significance of what Jesus was saying. It would have flashed before their minds, who is this man to claim that he's the light of the world? Who is it that he would have the audacity, the boldness to equate himself basically with Yahweh? Because Yahweh was the one who was the light of our world. Yahweh is the one who guided us. And now all of a sudden Jesus shows up upon the scene and says, No, I am the true. I am the good. I am the final light of the world. That if you want life, right there it says it. This is so beautiful in verse 12. Don't skip by it. But he says, if you want life, I am the light that leads to this life. That if you want to see clearly, if you want to know who you are, if you want to know what you're made for, if you want to find the peace and the rest and the shalom that the Israelites would say, just that that way things are supposed to be, that daydream that all of us have, that hopes and dreams that we live with, if you want to find that, like, I am the light, I am the place, I am the source in which that comes from. Such a bold claim that Jesus is making, especially given the scenery. Now, here's the amazing thing about it. This is not the first time John has used the word light. If you remember, he used it all the way back in John 1 to describe Jesus. He said, Jesus is the light, the light that gives life. And the darkness would not overcome the light, but the light would be the one who overcomes the darkness, and the light would give us life. Point being that this is a theme that John has been developing throughout his entire gospel. We can't necessarily understand what John is trying to say here or how significant it is unless we see just how loaded of a word light is. And for all my photographer friends in the church today, here's the awesome thing about this word light here that's used in John 1 and also here in John 8, and it's used in some other places later on. This is the Greek word phos, phos, P-H-O-S. And basically it's where we get the word photo, where we get the word photo. So if you want to see an image, what do you do? You, you take a photo of something. I love when I have friends go on vacation and they bring back photos so I can see something clearly. Or we're a culture that loves selfies because we want to capture a moment and remember where we are and who we were with. And what it is, is, is you're capturing an image so that you can show others. 
Um, I had some friends recently come back from their honeymoon and just seeing some of their pictures of this cool, the cool places they went. And getting to see it brought it alive. What Jesus is saying is, if you see me, you're seeing God alive. You want to see an image of God, look at me. If you want to see what God looks like, look at me. If you want to know who God is, look no further. I am the photograph of God. I'm the photo of the God of the universe. Greek, the, the, the Jewish leaders would have totally understood this, and it would have just driven them nuts that Jesus is saying, I am the photograph of God. I am the image of God. Friends, this is true for us. This word light is so significant. I want you, as you, you read your Bible, as you study your Bible, to never pass by the significance of this word Here's a few different things um, and ways we see light being used in the Bible. It'll come up on the slide, but you probably won't be able to see it, so I'll read them to you. Number one, light allows us to see clearly. Uh, this seems so evident, not obvious, right? Like light allows us to see clearly. But I remember a couple weeks ago when we had a massive power outage here in Seattle. Once again, I'm not the most prepared guy. Um, so my, my iPhone was about at like 20%, and I had to use it as a flashlight. And our power was out for about 10 hours. And needless to say, my phone lasted about three hours. And so the rest of the time, uh, we were in the dark. But what it led Crystal and I to do is just ask ourselves, how prepared are we for the next time the lights go out? How ready are we when, I don't know, an earthquake comes or whatever they talk about around here in Seattle? Whenever that hits, how prepared were we? And we realized not very. And so, but light allows us to see clarity. It really is a question of how prepared are you in your life? Like how prepared are you when you look around and you're looking at your future and you're looking at your reality and you're even looking deep within your soul trying to understand who you are and what drives you and what motivates you? Do you allow the light of the gospel, do you allow the light of God's word to transform you and to come in? So many of us, we walk through life wanting to understand what drives us, what motivates us, why we do what we do, why people are who they are, And we just want to see clearly, and God's word allows us to see clearly. This is the beauty of applying God's words to our life, is it allows us to see us who we are. John Calvin, in his, uh, just his magnum opus, the Institutes of Religion, he starts the book basically by saying this, that once you see God, you'll be able to see yourself. That it is by seeing God that you're able to truly see yourself. Light allows us to see clearly. Light also kills sin. When you bring light into the darkness, it has a way of also exposing it. It's the same way as when you lift up a rock and you find all the bugs begin to scatter as light is applied into the situation. That the things that we hide in the crevices and the corner and the last, as I always call it, the 10% that we hide from others and we don't let them see about ourselves, as we open that up and we expose it to light, it has a way of killing sin. Light also brings joy. Light brings us deep joy. So many of us, whether it's our work life, our family life, our life with our friends, our life online, feel like these are very separated, that they're truncated, that they're all compartmentalized, that who I am at work, who I am at church, who I am on social media, they're different. And what we do is we feel this tension and we feel this frustration at times of wanting to be whole, of wanting to be just one person, of wanting to be complete. And what light does is it allows us to be one person. It allows us to be honest and exposed and vulnerable and healthy in complete ways as God word, God's words come in and speak who we honestly are. 
So how do we find this light? What does that look like? What does it look like for you and I to live in that light? Well, we'll talk about that more in a second. But one thing I do want to say real quickly is that this is why Jesus has come. He's come because for us, life is found walking in the light. This is so true. It's self-evident. I mean, I'm not saying anything super profound, but I'm just saying, what if you begin thinking about this and how it applies to all areas of your life? And not just when you're looking for a flashlight at midnight when the power goes out. If you want to see clearly, if you want to know who you are, if you want to know where you're going, if you want to know why you're here, then you look in the light. And who is the light? Who is the photograph of God? Who is the image of God? It's Jesus. Those words, just such precious and beautiful words that Jesus says once again there in verse 12. You'll have light that leads to life. So let me ask you a question. This is where it gets kind of practical. Come up here on the slide. What is the light of your world? What is, what is the light of your world? When you look around, when it's Monday, tomorrow morning, and the alarm clock goes off, what are you going to see the world by? What will give you guiding light to interpret your workday, your motivations, your relationships, your emotions? What will be your guiding light? What is the light of your world? What delivers you from darkness and danger? When you feel threatened, when you feel sad, when you feel alone, when you feel frustrated, when you feel tired, what is your light? What delivers you from danger? Where do you run to so that you can see clearly? Is it the opinions of others? Is it performance at work? Is it your achievements in school? Are these the things that you think will deliver you from danger of being irrelevant and forgotten and not good enough? Where do you place your hope? Where do you place your hope? Now here's, here's how we'll all know, myself included. I'm preaching myself this morning more than anything else. Here's how we'll know where our light is. Is that when it begins to dim, we will grow afraid. When it begins to dim we will grow afraid. When your health begins to grow dim, when your body wears out, when your schedule is constrained, when your finances collapse, when your career seems pointless, when your relationship is stalling out and growing dim, will you grow afraid? You look and say, I feel danger, I feel hopelessness because I feel like I'm in the unknown. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the light of the world. I don't grow dim. I don't go out. I cannot be extinguished. So what makes you able to see? And when that light goes out, will you go blind? Will life all of a sudden seem very pointless to you and frustrating and meaningless because you've lost what was guiding you and what was giving you direction? What guides it's your world. This is what I want us to see, is how Jesus is our light. Um, one of my favorite psalms, and it's, it's the longest one in all of the Bible. I think it's actually the longest chapter in the Bible, uh, Psalm 119. And many of you guys have heard this verse before, but it has incredible significance in even what we're looking at today. Um, psalm 119, verse 105. Verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp at my feet. Your word is a lamp at my feet. Okay, it sounds like a nice idea, but what it's really trying to explain to us is that often as you were walking through the desert, once again, 
you didn't get like the brights on your car. You didn't get strobe lights. You didn't get street lights. What you literally had was one lamp, one lantern, and you would hold it right in front of you. And all you got to see was the very next step. That's it. You got to see the very next step. That's all the light that you were given. And this, this, this drives us nuts because we love control. We want to know what's going to happen. We want to know how things are going to work out. We want promises. We want to see the finish line. We want assurances. We hate the idea that we're going to have to live life by faith. That at times, all you're going to get is to see the very next step in front of you. And the rest of life, the rest of where God's got you, the rest of where God's leading you, seems completely black. It's unknown. And that's scary. So we run to other things that we think will provide us more light. If I build up my bank account big enough, then that will be my light. Because it won't let me down. It will provide light for me when things get tough. If I have enough friends, if I build out a big enough network, if I, whatever it might be, acquire these skills, get this position, whatever it might be, then that will allow me to see further than the next step. I have have such compassion for many of you who are here today, and, and you're in that spot. You're right there where you don't know the next step after the light in front of you. Incredible compassion for you. I think Jesus has compassion for you. And and what he's begging you, what he's pleading with you to do, what he's encouraging you to do this morning is to just take that next step. Don't worry about 50 yards down the road. Don't worry about 100 yards down the road. Don't worry about three years from now. If you've made a mess of things, if you've blown it, if you've been let down, if you feel abused, betrayed, abandoned, just take the next step. Take that step toward Jesus. Be faithful in the small things. I think this is why Jesus always encourages us for for us not to worry, for let the troubles of tomorrow be the troubles of tomorrow and to live in the present because that's often all the light that we get. And this is so hard, especially for us Americans. We love to have control. We love to be able to chart out our own destiny. We love to know what is next. I gotta be honest with you. Every single one of us in this room, we're going to go through incredible long seasons where you're not going to be able to see anything, but you're going to feel everything. You're not going to see, but you're going to feel. You're going to feel the danger. You're going to feel the fear. You're going to feel the risk. You're going to feel the hopelessness. And you're not going to be able to see much. Those are beautiful places. Those are spaces that I believe Jesus intentionally carves out for us to meet him in incredibly significant and powerful ways. If, and I just plead with you this morning, that you wouldn't run to find a new light, but rather that you'd come to Jesus, knowing that he is the light of the world, that in him, in the light of Jesus, we find life. So what we see in the next set of verses, what I want us to see here is what happens when we stay in the dark, what happens when we refuse to just take the next step, because that's really what's going on in the rest of our encounter as we pick it up in verse 17, Jesus is talking to some individuals who choose to stay in the dark. They, they reject his message that he is the light that leads to life. And here's what they say, or this is what Jesus says, and they, they, they come back at him. Your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. I am one witness, and my Father who sent me is the other. 
Where is your father, they ask. Once again, these are not questions that they're asking because they want to understand, but as I said a couple weeks ago, these are questions that they're asking because they want to undermine. They know full well who Jesus' earthly father is. They would have had access to his birth records. Jesus is not hiding his earthly identity, but he's also been bold enough to declare to him who he really is, that he comes from God the Father. Once again, it's because they're trying to undermine that. Jesus answered, since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my father is. If you knew me, you would also know my father. Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in the section of the temple known as the treasury. But he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. So even in this incredible encounter that Jesus is having with these religious leaders who have authority, especially over this section of the temple, this is the area of the temple where all the money is, so they would often have... um, four to five bins um, lined up against each side of the temple courts, and people could drop their money into those bins. Uh, We don't do that here at Redemption. I think it'd be a little weird. But that's how they had it set up. That's how they would take their tithes and offerings. And so they have complete control over this environment. And what Jesus is saying is that I still am the one who's ruling and reigning even over this encounter. Verse 21 continues. Later, Jesus said to them again, I'm going away. You will search for me, but you will die in your sin. You cannot come where I am going. The people answered, and once again, this just shows that they remain in the dark. When you remain in the dark, you begin to find yourself being ignorant, confused, and not understanding. So what do they think he's saying? They say, the people asked him, verse 22, are you planning to commit suicide? I mean, it's just, it gets a little silly, actually. It's a little comical. Because he's been emphatic with them over and over about who he really is and where he's really going. What does Jesus mean? You cannot come with me where I'm going. Jesus continued, You are from below. I am from below, above. You belong to this world. I do not. This is why I said to you, You will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Strong words from Jesus. Strong words. What is he really getting at here? Well, once again, you have these guys, these Pharisees who are coming at Jesus, and this is how nitpicky they are. Imagine someone was doing incredibly miracles, and our, our leaders, our authorities here came up, and, and they showed up, and their only question was, do you have a permit? Can I see a permit for this event? I know you're healing people. I know you're curing diseases. I know you're providing food. I know you're making mass lunches for the crowds. It seems like you're making some incredible claims about how reality is and the nature of the universe, but do you got a permit for that? I mean, they want to get legal with him. They want to get very technical with him. It's, it's almost stunning. It almost just shows you how absurd this encounter is, that their, their blindness is leading them to miss what is right in front of them. And what Jesus says is this blindness, this blindness that you have will lead to your death and your destruction. One of the things that I think often the church gets very wrong when we talk about sin with people is this this idea of almost we're in the moral Olympics, that some people have managed to figure it out and do really well, and they can clear the high bar of morality, and their lives look really good, and really that's what the church is saying the rest of the world should aspire to. And, and that's the message that I think often, sadly, many people in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families feel like they're receiving. Instead, what sin is, what sin is, is it's, it's the disintegration. It's the, it's the attack upon the way things are supposed to be, the way God designed them to be, the way God intended them to be. God is not against your pleasure. He is not against your joy. In fact, he made those things, and he wants to amplify them as you experience them in Christ. 
yet somehow the world receives this message that God is against joy and that what he's really doing more than anything else is he's seeing who can compete in the moral Olympics. Sin always leads to death, but what is death ultimately? Death is isolation and it's the disintegration of how something was intended to function or operate. When we talk about humans being broken, we're not saying necessarily that they're just bad. That's way too simplistic understanding of the Bible. What we're saying is that we're not the way we're supposed to be. We're not the way we ought to be. And this isn't news to anyone. You can read the newspapers. You can watch politicians talk about it in their policy speeches and debate platforms. But everyone's having conversations about how things ought to be and what's wrong with this place. This is a conversation about what leads to human flourishing, what leads to human good. Why does there seem to be so much misery and mess and pain and suffering? And even as we look internally, every single one of us deals with the reality of asking ourselves, am I the way I'm supposed to be? Am I lovable? Am I enough? Even that battle, that, that reality of, is there something wrong with me? This is what sin is. It's, it's our condition not a moral Olympics, but rather it's the reality of God looking upon his great creation and saying that's not the way it's supposed to be. And I'm not coming here in Jesus. Jesus is not coming to condemn and judge, but he's coming here to redeem and love. Drastically different message. When we step out of the light and when we live in the darkness, and I know here's the temptation, stepping into the light, especially when you haven't been in the light for a while, and I think that's what's going on with these Pharisees here, would have been incredibly scary. Because what happens when you're, I, I don't know, maybe you guys have done this to people, but if someone's dead asleep in the middle of the night and you turn on bright lights in the room, what's the initial response? It's this, ah, you know, this, uh, what is going on? Almost this, this disorientation that takes place. I mean, I used to do this with my roommates when I was in college. I would do it and come in and just bang a gong or something like that at 2 a.m. just to disrupt their sleeping environment. But it's very disorienting. Um, it's, it's very, well, it's, it's nerve-wracking. Well, and it's also a bit offensive, isn't it? You would be pretty mad. That's the initial reaction sometimes when light comes in. And here's light showing up to these people that are in the dark. And the temptation is almost to cover, to hide yourself from the light, to remain in the dark. I mean, my girls do it all the time. When I come in their room, they pull their blankets over their head. I know there's a lot of blanket pulling over the head people in this room right now even. Like, just those people that pull the blanket over their head when they, w- when they wake up. Because you don't want to come into the light. Because coming into the light might have consequences. To continue my silly illustration, like, if you come into the light and you get woke up, you might, gotta, you might have to get out of bed. You know, like, there's a consequence that comes along with it. But for these guys, there would have been an incredible consequence. Rethinking how they understand who God is. Rethinking their prestige and their place in society, rethinking their power and their authority and their control and their message of judgment and condemnation that many of the people they lead often feel and live with. A rethinking would have had to take place. So for you, what are you willing to rethink as Jesus brings you into the light? There's always consequences when we come into the light and follow Jesus. Always consequences. This is once again where the gospel gets distorted, which is once again, Jesus just wants you to behave better. He just wants you to get your act together. He just wants you to knock it off. Whatever you're doing, he just wants you to stop and start being good. It's not the message. In fact, as we've looked at the gospel of John time and time again, 
Jesus does say this phrase to people. He tells them to sin no more, but it's always after he gives them new life. Jesus heals, just like we saw last week. Jesus heals, he restores, he redeems someone, and then he tells them, you're free. You don't have to live anymore. You can live how humans were supposed to live. You can live in the light. So this is where it almost gets redundant, but there's a lot of humor in here. It's kind of funny. You look at verse 25, and they, they go a second round. They say, who are you? They demanded. They're, now they're getting kind of ornery. Who are you? And Jesus replies, the one I have always claimed to be from the beginning. It's almost as if Jesus is beginning to get a bit annoyed. He's basically saying, I've told you already. I've already answered this question. You want to know who I am? I've already told you. Why do you refuse to listen? It's another round of who are you? But this really is the question, the question for all of us. Who are you, Jesus? Every single one of us has to answer that question. Jesus, who are you? Are are you the light? Are you a fraud? Who are you? If we can just be honest, I think for most of us, this is not a cognitive problem. What I mean by that, it's not an intellectual problem where we come to Jesus and we look at his life and we kind of weigh it out and go, okay, well, it's clear by the evidence. He is who he says he is and these miracles were validated. I mean, it's, we, don't, we don't do a historical analysis, most of us, when we're investigating Jesus or when you're talking to your friends or your neighbors or loved ones about Jesus. It's not often a cognitive binary decision. It's not a zero or one. What's really going on here is not a cognitive problem but it's a love problem. It's what do you love? What do you value? What do you cherish? What drives us into the ark is often an addiction to something we love more than Christ. Something we won't surrender, something we won't give up, something we refuse to have exposed. The conversations that go on often in this country, and I I mean, I'll, we're like a year away from it, but I, always, I already feel like political season's ramping up. And what's fascinating to me, even just this political conversation that often takes place in our country, is the, the mental filters that people almost begin to develop as they're interpreting news or hearing events. And what I mean by that is, as they hear about a situation, there's a confirmation bias that almost takes place. Almost, how does this fit what I already believe? How does this conform to what I want to be true? How does this mesh with what I already know? And what it is, is it's a filter. It's I want to see the world this way. This is what lights up my world. This is how I see the world. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to develop a filter that allows me to continue to see the world that way. And when new information comes in, when new realities come in, when new truths come in, Either they'll get stuck in that filter and I really won't absorb them and feel them and let them have their way with me or I'll find a way to reinterpret them. We do that all the time with Jesus. We do that all the time with his message. We do that all the time with his claims. Jesus, I really like the part where you seem to hang out with you know, the, the marginalized and you make free lunches for people. But I don't like that part where you start talking about how you're the way, the truth, and the life and that there's no way to God but through you. We develop a filter. 
We do this all the time, and that's exactly what's going on with the Pharisees. They're not any different than us. If, if we're fully honest, most of us, if we were in this place, we would be right there with the Pharisees. I'm not picking on them because I'm one of them. And it's only, it really only is through a miraculous work of God that he gives us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are soft so that we might be receptive to his light. That we might see him clearly for who he is. This is a miraculous work. Often people argue, are there miracles still today? I would argue every time you see someone see clearly Jesus for who he is, you've witnessed a miracle. You've seen a heart of stone go to a heart of flesh. You've seen someone do the ultimate transformation. They've gone from death to life. They've, they've become a new creation in Christ. What a beautiful picture of Jesus' transformative work that he's still doing here in us. This also, and, and this is where I want us to spend just a few more minutes, and then we'll wrap up, I promise. What, what you see going on here is Jesus also would have been very almost insulting to these guys by continuing to pick apart, almost teasing them by saying, you don't really know who God is. You think you know God, but you don't know God. I mean, this, this would be like going up to Steve Jobs. Well, he's not alive, but if he, if he was alive and saying, you don't know what an iPhone is. Or going up to Henry Ford and saying, you don't know what a car is. Or uh, whatever example you want to give of someone who's very intricately aware and knowledgeable to a certain subject, and you walk up to them and you tell them you don't really know what that is. Jesus is walking up to men who have spent their entire lives memorizing the Old Testament. None of us in this room have memorized the entire Old Testament. They dedicate and orchestrate their entire lives to live out 612 commandments of the Old Testament law. And Jesus walks up, and probably the most offensive thing you could have said to these guys is you don't know God. You don't know God. This is where I think a lot of their outrage came from. You don't know who God is. And what goes on, and before, once again, we just go like silly Pharisees, you know, and just write them off. This is where it comes down for you and I. When, when I was a kid, um, just like a lot, of, a lot of guys my age, I grew up just absolutely obsessed with Michael Jordan. Loved Michael Jordan. I lived in Illinois for a few years during the, the early 90s when the Bulls were at their apex. And I knew absolutely everything about Michael Jordan. I knew that he was born in Brooklyn, New York. I knew he'd grown up in North Carolina, and he was the third pick of the 1983 basketball draft. I knew that he was six-time finals MVP and NBA champion. I, I knew he had two sons and a daughter. He was married to Juanita in 1989. I knew exactly—I I mean, I know, I know a lot still about Michael Jordan. But here's the thing. If I were to run into Michael Jordan, and I have, I'll tell you that story another day. But um, if I was to run into him, all this information I know about him, it doesn't mean he knows me. And it doesn't mean I really know him. In fact, that's called a stalker. It's someone who knows a lot about someone else but doesn't know them. So if you know a lot about someone but they don't know you and you don't really know them, you're a stalker. And that's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here. You guys, you're basically stalkers. Because you don't know God. If you did know God, you would realize he's standing right in front of you right now. How blind do you have to be to memorize everything there is to know about God and then when you see him face to face to not recognize him? You don't know God. So what about for us? Do we come to church? Do we read our Bibles? Do we go to life groups? Do we do, we do all the things that's kind of collecting information about God? Do we kind of stalk God? 
Do we really know him? Do, 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 do we take the risk to say, I'll, I'll be honest. I'll step into the light, even if it's going to be scary. I'll make some new friends. I'll join a life group. I'll begin to serve and use my gifts in a way I haven't done before. I'll just step in the next step that God has for me. I'll let go of some old wounds. I'm going to learn to forgive. I'm going to be honest about some of the places where I struggle and I'm embarrassed and I'm prideful and I don't want anyone else to find out about. But man, I I want to know God. I don't want to just know about God, but I want to know God. Church, we are utterly wasting our time if we're here just to know about God. If this just becomes a lecture hall where someone stands up here and says some cool things about God, but we don't really get to know God, if we don't beg for his Holy Spirit to show up, to transform us, to change us, to give us new life, to embolden us, to repent of our sin, to lay down our wills, to lay down our priorities for the sake of others, that's where the good stuff is. That's where the God stuff is. That's where you encounter Jesus is when you join him on his mission. When you join him in his work, what he's up to, and he's up to so many good things. When I look around redemption right now, I see so many beautiful things, and I marvel at just how gracious gracious Jesus has been to us and the work that he's doing in our midst. But I want us to be a church that really knows God, that knows him. Jesus closes out after a little bit more of an exchange with the Pharisees. And what's fascinating, I love this, because Jesus' words never return void. In verse 30 it says, Then many who heard him say these things believed in him. Many who heard him say these things believed in him. So maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here, and the Lord's working in your life, and the Spirit's moving in your soul. And you're hearing some things, and the Lord's giving you eyes to see and ears to hear. And if you're a non-Christian, maybe that means for the first time you surrender your life, you quit running, you quit following some other light, or you admit you're in the dark, you lay down your sin, and you begin to follow Jesus, the light that he's given you, the light that he's shown you. Or if you're a Christian, and maybe you've had a relationship with Jesus, but things are dim, and you don't know where to go next, and you feel frustrated, you feel dry, you feel tired, you feel worn out, you would come to him today as we take communion as we sing songs as we worship that you would come to him that you would repent that you would do whatever business he has in front of you for some of you it's going to be forgiving someone for some of you it's going to be taking the next step where it seems very fearful right now and creating new relationships and new community and fighting for a new reality that doesn't always seem easy but man is it worth it that is where the good stuff of life is So it comes back to the question we even looked at the very beginning, or what we said at the very beginning. Life is found walking in the light. And the beauty is, the amazing thing is, is because Jesus came to the Israelites as they were wandering through the desert, the Jewish people, to show them the way. Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago to show humanity the way so that we wouldn't stay in the dark so that we wouldn't have to grope and and just kind of feel our way around aimlessly and lost, trying to figure out who we are and what we're here for and why we're made. But rather, Jesus was, was raised up, lifted up on a cross, died for our sins, making 
making atonement for my brokenness and for yours, paying the penalty for our sins so that we would have new life. This is not just good news, it's the best news. It's the news that changes absolutely everything. So imagine, imagine if we were a church that even when life grew dim, our life wouldn't because we lived in the light of his glorious grace.